Everything all right over there, my friend? Over here. Is that all of it? Yeah. I guess. Here's a Japanese sandman sneaking on with a tune. Just an old second sandman. Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Hallwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And in this episode, we're looking at the 2022 horror film, Glorious. And now on to our main topic, Glorious. Following last episode's discussion of Gatanathoa, we thought we'd explore his recent depiction in one of the more unusual Lovecraftian horror films out there. Boy, is this one unusual. While this version of Gitanathoa differs somewhat from Lovecraft's, yeah, glory <laughs> holes included, you may still find some Call of Cthulhu inspiration here. Just remember to wash your hands afterwards. So Glorious is a 2022 American horror film made by director Rebecca McKendry and released by Shudder. It stars Ryan Quaten as Wes and J.K. Simmons as the mysterious voice we eventually learn belongs to Gitanathoa. Yeah, this is sort of a two-hander, this film, sort of, except... Sort of. Yeah, you do have a few supporting characters who pop up every now and then, but just very, very briefly. One of them is there for a scene, the others are just for, like, momentary flashes. But also, yeah, is it really a two-hander if one of them is just a voiceover? I'd argue it's, it's a one-actor piece, really. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a single-hander with all the all that, that brings. Yeah, because I'm sure that Simmons wasn't on set at the same time as Quentin, probably did all his lines in post. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that actually makes Quentin's uh, performance a bit more impressive because if he wasn't really reacting to anyone, just sort of standing there talking to an empty set, but I don't know how easy that is. McKendry has worked with her screenwriter husband, David, on a number of horror films, including... All the Creatures Were Stirring, and Elevator Game, neither of which I've heard. He also co-wrote the script for Glorious. Yeah, I've been meaning to catch up with All the Creatures Were Stirring for a while, but it is on Shudder. It's a sort of Christmas anthology horror film, and I was going to watch it, I think, last Christmas, but didn't get round to it. IMDb credits the film as being based on Out of the Eons by H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald, which we <laughs> mentioned last episode, although there's really nothing of that story in the film beyond the name Gatanathoa. I mean, that Gatanathoa is like based on the Gatanathoa from the story, though, right? I would have said. In name only. No, I think the fact that you one of the key things is you, you can't, can't look, look at it without yeah. it breaking you. And that's really crucial in this story, which is an unusual aspect to have, I think. Yes, yeah, I think that's certainly the biggest similarity. I mean, any other resemblance depends on how much you think a a toilet resembles a volcano. (laughs) Well, depends if you've been to Taco Bell before you visit said toilet. 
And now on to a discussion of the story of Glorious. We open with a brief dream sequence as Wes, our protagonist, nods off at the wheel while driving on the highway. An experience I'm well aware of. Ever done that, Matt? <laughs> no, because I usually have people <laughs> screaming at me to try and keep me awake, thankfully. Yeah. Yes. I seem to recall your Merc beeped when you started nodding off. Yeah. I don't know if you were aware of this or whether you were asleep. <laughs> when you started to drift off, it'd be beep, 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 and you'd, you'd wake up again. Was that the collision detection or it detecting that you were arriving off the rumble strip or something? But whatever it was, yes, I remember that. That feature isn't in the car I've got at the minute, but I definitely know that that beep, beep, beep could have just as easily been a heartbeat monitor. Right. The dream is of a conversation between Wes and his ex, Brenda, which is interrupted by a sudden flash of something eldritch. The credits. Wes decides to pull into a rest stop and wake himself up. When Wes parks, we see that he has a red box and a teddy bear on the passenger seat beside him. As Wes picks up the teddy, a recorded voice from it tells him that it loves him very much. Wes, in reaction, starts wailing and smacking the bear repeatedly into the steering wheel. I love you very much. I love you. I love you. The camera at this stage zooms up and out and up and up and up, ultimately looking down at the Earth from orbit. Wes calls Brenda's phone repeatedly to listen to her voicemail greeting until finally his phone runs out of charge. Frustrated, Wes smashes the phone on the tarmac. Again, I thought of Matt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. No, yeah. this is a me reaction, definitely. <laughs> That's a reasonable reaction for you, right? God, yeah, every piece of fucking technology just hates me. Right. And I'm pretty sure you have punched a, a laptop today. I have. You have, yes. Yeah. But, I mean, surely you can charge phones through the application of kinetic energy. This is just science. <laughs> he then spends several hours drinking bourbon and burning some of what we take to be Brenda's belongings in a fire pit by the rest stop. This includes a bunch of photos from the red box and eventually he passes out on the grass as you would having drunk a load of bourbon and um, danced around yelling where he has more dreams of Brenda and alien weirdness or dreams. There's a bit of alien weirdness around this time anyway because we see a strange flower growing outside the rest stop as well that it looks, yeah, very odd and very purple, and doesn't look quite like it belongs there. Straight out of a Nick Cage film there. Yeah, colour out of space. Yeah. yeah. There was also that little bit which I didn't really understand why it was in there. I don't know if either of you two have got any ideas where he meets that woman sitting outside who looks a bit shell-shocked who helps him get a, a chocolate bar out of the machine that's not working properly. I couldn't work out what the point of that scene was. Well, I think it's trying to get him somebody to react against, because if you've only got one actor on screen, I think it's a, a struggle. <laughs> so I think having some NPCs in there is good. But also the woman comes up and like, oh, I'm going to fix this for you. Because the chocolate bar is stuck in the, um, the, the vending machine mm. and he's been like, 
punching it or whatever and that he can't get it out. But she asks him for another coin. So she gets it by putting more money in. I mean, that's not really a fix. That's just paying again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay. Maybe the point is that he hadn't actually paid enough to get Maybe. the chocolate bar out in the first place. And I guess there is some echo of this whole thing about him having to pay more to offer up more money to get the chocolate out that sort of echoes what happens later on in the film. Oh, uh, maybe. I think it was just set in a bit of scene. I don't know. To be fair, I'd forgotten about her entirely until you just mentioned her. So that shows how mm. much of an impact that scene had. When he sobers up, Wes realises he's burnt his trousers along with everything else, as you do. Nausea overwhelms <laughs> him and he runs into the bathroom to vomit. A voice from the next cubicle asks if he is all right. Yeah, Wes looks up at this stage and sees this very weird and unsettling painting on the cubicle wall beside him, depicting a many-eyed humanoid figure that's got three breasts which have got eyes for nipples on them and a head that's crowned with these snake-like tentacles that end in mouths and teeth. And it's sitting atop a pile of what appear to be human skulls. And... There is a, a circular mouth in the centre of the creature's face with teeth drawn on it. And this is suspiciously at crotch height, this hole. The unseen stranger in the other cubicles seems surprised to learn that this place is a bathroom. Wes is less than delighted when the stranger wants to make conversation, <laughs> especially when the stranger recounts the precise mixture of bodily fluids and bacteria Wes has now smeared on his face after leaning on the lavatory seat while vomiting. As far as character introductions go, that's a good one. What is it? You have 27 different types of bacteria in your eye at the moment. I can tell you what they all are. And I think, doesn't he offer to tell him the names of everyone who contributed to the yeah. fecal matter on him? It's Either alphabetically or by chronology of their additions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The stranger mentions that they should tell each other their names, offering to show Wes how to pronounce his. This involves Wes grabbing the tip of his own tongue and trying to say, got another one. This turns into Gatanathoa, the name of a very old and lonely god. Aww. The voice says that he is actually this god, not just named after him. The pronunciation here, that's... I'm trying to remember exactly how it goes, but it is Gatanatatoa or something like that. Hmm. Slower. It certainly seems to have an extra syllable in it compared to the way we'd normally pronounce it, and the emphases are all over the place. And I much prefer that that pronunciation, but as I mentioned last episode, it's awkward to say. So, uh, I mean, happily, happily, the film comes up with a solution to this, and Wes just starts calling him Gat. <laughs> Wes tries to peer into the glory hole, but Gat tells Wes not to look at him. Wes ignores him and leans over the top of the cubicle, suddenly then falling to the floor and clutching his head in agony. When Wes wakes up, he is outside and fully clothed. He gets into the car where Brenda is in the passenger seat. She tells him he shouldn't have looked in the stall as tentacles come out of her eyeballs. Wes finds himself back on the bathroom floor, trouserless. 
Gat asks if Wes saw her, inverted commas, her. He tells Wes that he knows everything that happened. Wes tries to run away, but finds the door of the restroom won't open. He looks out the window and sees purple light surrounding the building. He begs to be released, but Gat just tells him to pull it together. The special effects in this film are highly variable. Some of them are actually quite good, particularly there there are some practical effects that we see as this goes on. But there is this scene of him looking out the window at this purple light that is now surrounding the rest stop. And that wasn't good, was it, that, that effect? Um, seemed all right. It seemed okay. I mean, it was. I mean, I don't think it's a, a big budget movie. No, no, it, yeah, not. it was kind of clearly computer generated, but I was okay with it. It didn't sort of take me out of the film. It did sort of take me out at that moment, just very briefly, just simply because I think the rest of the special effects within the limitations that the film's got were really quite good. There's a couple a bit later on that are you know, perhaps a little ropey. But that one, I don't know, it just looked like something that comes out of a film from the 90s. It just seemed, I, I don't yeah. know, just very out of place to me compared to the rest of the film. But I mean, that's a, that's a small quibble. Wes says that he wishes he had just driven on to the next rest stop. But Gat tells him that wouldn't have made any difference. This meeting has been preordained. Wes catches sight of something monstrous poking out of the bottom of the bathroom stall and tries to climb out the window, but just smacks his head on the floor after slipping off the urinal. And this little glimpse that we get of something sticking out the bottom of the stall, as I said, the practical effects in this film are really quite good. And there's this sort of pulsating mass, almost like a, a misshapen water balloon, but something that looks at the same time perhaps distressingly scrotal that is glowing purple and there are things you can see moving in it just poking down that crack at the bottom of the store and yeah I, I really quite liked the way that looked I was going to say something similar like it's a glowing hanging ball sake that you just catch the uh, <laughs> the edge of Gat tells Wes he cannot look directly at Gat Doing so would turn Wes into a horrid shell devoid of humanity. Wes continues to look for ways out, finding a vent in the wall which he starts to unscrew. Gat appears sympathetic to Wes's plight, saying his situation isn't his own plan. Meanwhile, Wes tries to crawl out through the vent, but it just impossibly leads right back to the bathroom. Now there's a trick we haven't seen in every game that's uh, locked in a singular situation <laughs> ever. <laughs> yeah. But going back to that thing about not looking directly at Gat, as you were mentioning earlier, Paul, yeah, this is the bit that really, I was about to say justifies, but at least explains why they make reference to Gitanothoa in this film. Hmm. It's obviously a very different effect, but... That whole thing about, you know, you becoming a horrid shell devoid of humanity, when to some extent, we'll see as the film goes on, but to some extent, isn't that what Wes is already? A little less leathery and a bit more mobile. But the shell aspect being metaphorical and devoid of humanity, he... Yeah, anyway. Wes asks what he needs to do to get out of this place. Gat tells him that... The universe has a favour to ask. 
a line so memorable they used it as the tagline for the film. The two argue about what Wes's responsibility is in this situation, and we see a flashback to Brenda asking, What did you do, Wes? Desperate, Wes tries to lose himself in a memory of him and Brenda at a barbecue, but Gat screams until Wes's ears bleed, bringing him right back to the present. Gat starts to tell Wes a story about a being of pure energy that had the power of creation. As so often happens in mythology, this being's children rise up against him, and as they fight, the being is injured, and his spilled blood becomes the universe. The entity so hated this creation, however, that he made a being of pure destruction to undo it all. This being is Gatanathoa. Creating Gat weakened the entity, allowing his children to imprison him. You know, I was wondering throughout all this, when you're going to name drop which one it is. Is it Yog-Sothoth? Is it, uh, is it Azathoth? Yeah, was... Is it Ubersathla? Which god are you talking about, damn it? I was hoping for some Azathoth or something, because uh, we've, we've gone this far, we could have thrown another name in, really. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that as well. In fact, to the extent where I'd actually misremembered and kind of assumed they had, because we do see something tentacled and horrible later, and I'd hatched in my mind that that was identified as Cthulhu, but, you no. know, no, it's, it's not. It's not mentioned at all. In his father's absence, Gat has started to feel a connection to the universe and does not want to destroy it. His father, however, is awakening, and Gat will soon be forced to fulfil his destiny. Obviously, this is a hugely different take on this deity than we see in the mythos, not just in Lovecraft's story, but in the way that Gatanathor is presented in Call of Cthulhu. But not just that, this whole creation myth and this very non-mythos, are we ever tempted to do stuff like that in our own games and take the mythos in very unmythos-like directions like this? In a word, no. I mean, I think we do. I think this one is is a contrivance just so that there's that conflict mm. with Gat, really, isn't it? Yeah. He's got the job of destroying the universe, but he doesn't really want to. We've all been there. Yeah, Monday to Friday, 8.30 till 5. <laughs> I quite like the idea of doing something completely different with the mythos along these lines. At times, Glorious reminded me very much of William Browning Spencer's resume with monsters, not in terms of the storyline, but in the, the way that it creates these personal relationships between humans and mythos entities and sort of perversely humanizes these these monsters through a combination of pathos and comedy. But also, I mean, what you were just saying there, Paul, with this being a contrivance, I suppose in terms of scenario design and the kinds of things you throw into your game, that, I suppose, is a fundamental philosophical question as to how you use the mythos in your games, whether you're trying to adhere to some kind of canon or some kind of representation of what the mythos is and what these gods are as laid down in fiction, or whether they are just simply these sort of names and masks and images that you can throw onto other very radically different types of premise and story and just do with as you please. 
I mean, I think that's fairly much the approach that I usually take, if mm. I'm understanding you correctly. Yeah. But I'd say in terms of scenario design, what this scenario, this film reminds me of is the kind of scenarios where you've got the NPCs and they're kind of trapped at a location and there's not actually much for them to do and there's no one for them to interact with. And we kind of have a bit of circular going round and round, like they try and get away, but they can't. They try and do something, but they can't. And that's kind of how it feels to me. I know if this was a scenario and I was a player, I'd be pretty frustrated by this point because it would be, oh yeah, yeah the door you can't get through. Oh yeah, the corridor or the uh, tunnel that le or the vent that leads you back to where you started. Very cliched and it gets repetitive after you've done it so many times. But I don't think the film does it that many times. It's clearly got to address those elements just because of the premise they've chosen. Where's being the kind of character he is, of course, he's going to try to get away. And so they've got to really represent that in, in the film. So I don't see that as being a problem. And this is something I think we've touched on a number of times in discussions and media, that fundamentally there are things that you can get away with doing in fiction and make them fun or entertaining, or at least not frustrating, that would not work in games. Because it doesn't really matter if you rob a protagonist of agency in a scene or through a premise or at least take away a lot of their agency as long as there's still interesting conflict going on and as long as there's still an interesting story being told but in a game that kind of shit doesn't fly gat says that only wes can help him return to his ethereal form preventing the destruction of everything in order to do this Wes needs to satisfy Gat's desires by offering part of himself through the hole. He doesn't call it a glory hole, but that's yeah. what we take it to be. I'm assuming that everyone listening has some idea of what a glory hole is. But if you don't... If not, go Google it. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in image search. And then blame Scott. <laughs> but for your edification, Scott will now tell you. Get ready. So, yes, a glory hole in this context is a hole whereby parts of the anatomy can be presented to an unseen stranger on the other side for stimulation, let's say. Refer you to previously mentioned that this hole is at somewhat crotch height. Yeah. You stick your dick through it, right? <laughs> Well, as we'll find out soon, maybe, maybe not. Well, okay. Before this can go any further, Gary, the facilities manager, turns up to inspect the rest stop. He hears Wes's cry for help, but can't open the door. Wes demands that Gat let Gary in. Despite his initial refusal, Gat relents, trapping Gary in there with them. Now, if it were fucking players, they'd be like, okay, this guy's coming in. I'm going to wedge the door. I'm going to, I'm going to stand in the door and hold it open. Yeah. And then the GM's got to be like, hmm, yeah, but the door pushes you back in. Or, um, or you think you're holding it shut, but oh, now you're, in the, you're back in the room with your trousers off. And, yeah. yeah. But anyway, obviously the door is, is shut. Oh, there's a semi-permeable membrane through the opening door that only allows Gary in, but when you walk into it, you bounce off. Yep. We've all been there. And therein lies the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Gat tells Gary 
that he is a part of all of this now, as purple light fills the bathroom. Gary suggests calling the police, because of course he does, but Gat asks Wes if he thinks this is wise, given his situation. We've had seen a couple of perhaps vague hints, but this is the first time that we're perhaps getting the idea that we're not getting the full story with Wes. And with all this reference to Purple Light and also what Matt said earlier, it just made me realise, I, I want to see a remake of this film starring Nicolas Cage. That'd be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Would it? Would it really? I think he could go full Cage pretty it well in this. It'd be great. <sighs> When Gary tries calling anyway, he only hears Gat's voice speaking to him from his mobile phone. Wes tries to convince Gat to take an offering from Gary instead. Look, he's there. Just just take him in instead of mm. me. But Gat insists that this is not Gary's role. I mean, it's his destiny, but not his role. <laughs> he has that disposable NPC neon sign over his head that's pretty much flashing wildly at this point. Yes, which is unfortunate because I like the fact of having another actor in there with our guys. So he's got someone to bounce off. I thought it, it was improved by that. Hmm. I, I don't know. I, though we don't see Gat, or at least not at this stage, I still found there was enough of a dynamic between the characters that I never really felt. I mean, yeah, as, as we discussed at the start of this, I mean, obviously, Ryan Quentin was, was acting to an empty room. But I don't know. It never really felt like that to me. It really felt like he was communicating with this unseen entity in the stall. I mean, he is, but that's a very. You've really just got the one guy that you're looking at in, in terms of visual media. I didn't have a problem with that because there's enough other stuff going on that. Yeah, it certainly worked for me. But also, I think like J.K. Simmons is, is just such a good actor, like in mm. like Juno and Whiplash and films like that, that. I can kind of, you know, I want to see him. If I'm hearing him, I want to see him as well. <laughs> well, maybe that's him in the rubber suit at the end. He is particularly expressive, but yeah, you get none of that here. Mm. When Gary tries to break into Gat's stall, Gat tells Wes to shelter in the other stall. The lights flicker as Gat emerge tearing Gary into pieces. And boy, is there a lot of blood that gets showered around at this point. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> I thought the fine mist was particularly good, which, yeah. yeah. We just see glimpses of this through the gap in Wes's stall door. Then, say, so Wes is showered with a fine mist of blood and it goes all artsy for a few moments. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it's oddly beautiful. A still-beating heart lands on Wes's stall floor, Overwhelmed, Wes retreats into memory again, remembering the barbecue where he met Brenda. When Wes finally emerges from the stall, the entire bathroom is absolutely covered in blood, every surface. Gary's severed leg lies on the ground, and there's an eyeball just sitting in the sink. This breaks Wes, and he starts demanding to know how he can end this nightmare. Gat tells Wes that he simply needs to satisfy Gat's physical form. Stealing himself, Wes heads to the glory hole, from which light is now pouring out. Gat tells Wes, time is of the essence. When Wes tries to put his penis into the hole, Gat asks what the hell he's doing, telling him, your genitals are of no significance. 
And again, we've all been there. <laughs> I did like Wes's reaction as well of, well, that's just hurtful. Yeah, <laughs> this bit did make me laugh out loud. That was funny. Because we very much built, built up the, the expectation, the same as Wes, that this is what Gat wants. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, oh, <laughs> not what you want or what do you want? That was pretty funny. Yeah, it's a good fake out. And we'll be back in a few minutes with more inside the toilet cubicle. My name is Paul Fricker. My name is Mike Mason. And together, Mike and I have written and recorded a new show where you can hear chilling tales of horror. Join us, won't you, at eldritchstories.com. And remember, keep it eldritch. Do you like obscure books of hidden knowledge? I know I do. The Blasphemous Tome is a Call of Cthulhu fanzine produced by the good friends of Jackson Elias. Everyone who backs us gets immediate access to a host of sanity-blasting issues of the tome. Join us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. And now we return to our blood-soaked toilet cubicle in our review of Glorious. Gat explains that what he actually needs is a piece of Wes's liver, not his penis. Oh well, just about <laughs> a foot difference. He says that Wes may survive this as liver regenerates. When Gat pushes a piece of broken mirror under the stall door, Wes balks at this, saying he'd rather let the universe die instead. I did wonder about the significance of asking for a piece of liver, whether there was some symbolism here that I was missing. I, it made me think of Prometheus, but there doesn't really seem to be anything of the myth of Prometheus to this. Uh, so, yeah, I, I couldn't work out whether there was something I was missing here. No, I can only think it's something you could donate which is extremely difficult to give, mm. but it does grow back and you can live without part of. But, you know, I'm not sure I could give someone a part of my liver. I think when he starts to make the cut, and I'm thinking, you know, whereabouts is my liver? <laughs> yeah. And then obviously Wes goes for the wrong side and uh, Gat's yes. like, it's on the other side. <laughs> and uh, he, he swaps over. But even with a proper knife, cutting... And then getting a bit of your liver out. I think just the physical demands of doing that, it's not just going to be down to your own willpower, I think. I think that's going to be really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think there's also a whole aspect of revulsion here as well as the, yeah. <laughs> the self-mutilation and the physical pain. The fact that he's doing this in a blood and filth-soaked bathroom with a piece of broken mirror that's just been shoved across a toilet floor. I'm not sure the hygiene is the concern. No, but it's not going to help. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do this under hygienic conditions, but somehow it still manages to make things worse. It didn't occur to me, but yeah. The only thing that really comes to my mind is that you've got that opening scene before he comes into the bathroom that he is completely chugging down a whole bottle of bourbon and then runs into the toilet to, to throw up. There's a T-shirt a friend of mine had that always sticks in my mind of the liver is evil and must be punished. <laughs> Thinking that maybe it's almost tying back to that, that 
he tried to lose himself and tried to almost hide within that bottle of bourbon. And that obviously the liver's processed that after he's drunk it. Oh, okay, yeah. So there, there might be some kind of connection that they're getting to. It's almost like I want a piece of your arm or I want a piece of this defence that you've tried to hide behind to hide as what yourself as well as from the audience what you really are. But mm. again, that might be mm. me reading a little deep into it. Mm. As Gash and Wes debate the nature of selfishness, Wes starts talking about his controlling father and how his father drove Wes's mother to suicide before telling Wes that her suicide was selfish. Wes uses this as an argument for how everyone is selfish. Meanwhile, something monstrous starts breaking through the restroom wall. Wes sees the void of space through the hole, saying it looks beautiful, which, to be honest, it does look quite nice. Yeah. He tells Gat that he feels nothing, but Gat insists Wes still feels something for Brenda. These special effects, as I said, I mean, they're not the best special effects you'll ever see in a film, but this whole thing with the wall being ripped away in the vast void of space and this... Do we see the tentacles at this stage that are pulling the room apart or not? I don't think so. Not yet. But yeah, I mean, all in all, it's, it's not badly done. No, no. Not at all. Wes says he thought Brenda was special, but in the end, she turned out to be like all the others. As Gat tells Wes how he betrayed Brenda, Wes looks into the glory hole screaming, Fuck you. As Wes peers into the hole, he finds himself in a dark void, facing a monstrous version of the teddy bear we saw earlier. It repeats, I love you very much. As it tears a hole in itself, pulling Wes into it, Wes finds himself back on the bathroom floor in agony. Gat tells Wes this is the smallest pain he is capable of inflicting. Yeah, so this dark void in which he finds himself, did, did they just borrow that from Stranger Things? Because it looked just the same, didn't it? <laughs> well, I guess one black void looks much like another, really. But yes, I mean, it's that. It's just that black background. Yeah, but it, it was just the way it was photographed and presented. Yeah, yeah. They rent it out on weekends. His sanity fracturing, Wes looks into the mirror, laughing hysterically, and says that he looks like his father. He calls out to the crumbling wall of what lies beyond, telling Gat's daddy to come and get his son. Everything in the bathroom shakes as the wall collapses, revealing the sucking void of space and a tentacled horror floating in it. That was good. Hmm. Desperately, Wes crawls into the stall for shelter. Gat tells him he cannot protect them for long. As Wes remembers Brenda again, Gat tells him that her memory has to be worth something. If the world goes away, there won't be anyone left to carry this memory of her. Gat shows Wes what's at stake by removing his memory of Brenda's face. Even the photo he carries of her is now blank. Wes agrees to do whatever Gat wants if he is allowed to remember Brenda again. We've seen him looking at this photograph of Brenda all the way through this, because we have that scene of that we mentioned earlier where he'd burnt all these photographs and these personal belongings in the fire pit outside the rest stop. But he's held on to this one picture of Brenda. It's like this one personal connection that he's held on to all this time. His key connection, one might say. <laughs> one might. 
And then we get another flashback scene in which we see Brenda give Wes the teddy bear that we've we've seen all the way through this. Wes pictures her in this as being happy and him being happy for her, and it's a, a very sort of uplifting romantic scene, but it seems to be stirring up darker memories. Wes picks up the mirror shard from the toilet floor as the bathroom wall continues to disintegrate and he asks will it hurt and Gat just answers very much so Wes starts cutting into himself with the with this shard of glass now gouging into the right place after uh, Gat has corrected him and once again Wes retreats into the memory where we see him kissing Brenda she then finds his red box which we now see is filled with polaroids of women screaming in terror Wes is holding a butcher's knife and smiles at Brenda. We see blood soaking into her dress as Wes looks down. The knife is replaced with the mirror shard. The hands of his victims reach into him, pulling out his liver in his imagination as he does so in reality, or maybe in his imagination again. (laughs) I don't know. But at last, these flashbacks actually add up to something. Yeah. But it's like... We've got this reveal that he's a serial killer. I mean, I'm get, do we use the term serial killer for him? I don't know. I mean, it's kind of implied. Yeah, I mean, it's never stated explicitly, but I think it's implied strongly enough that we can, we can infer that. I don't know what that added, really. Because it's like, we're supposed to care about this guy who's killing himself, and now we're told he's a serial killer. Well, I care even less now. Yep. Oh, right. And on the other hand, it's like, We've had him sort of humanised by the fact that he's been caring about this photo and his memories of this woman. And now we're told that he killed her and he's supposed to be a serial killer, who, which to me kind of implies like a psychopath who doesn't care about people. It just didn't seem to fit very well. For me, that actually added a dimension to it. For a start, it completely wrong-footed me. I mean, that's not a justification for it, but I obviously picked up hints that were building throughout this that there was something going on with Wes that we weren't being told explicitly, but I didn't quite assume mm. that it was going to be that. But as far as him being a serial killer is concerned, I think that does add something to it because, I mean, for a start, it perhaps explains to some extent why Gat chose him for this sacrifice because if you're going to choose someone to effectively torture in this way and to force to do horrible things themselves doing it to a a terrible person may make sense so what about gary gary was just in the wrong place at the wrong time so that doesn't add up because unless gary was also a serial killer then like the, the caretaker who came round and gat just murdered brutally yeah but well, that was subtly different in that gat didn't want to bring him in that he was badged into doing it by uh, by ways and that for the bloody nature of of gary's death it was a quick one that he didn't sort of play with in torture and demand a sacrifice you know, it's the sacrifice part of this that's important. Gary at that stage was just a barrier to Gat's goals. And people in myths and stories about gods who get in the way of God's desires, well, it really goes well for them, doesn't it? What did you think, Matt? 
I'm very much on Paul's angle here that as soon as I've got that reveal that, oh, he's a serial killer, any investment, any desire I had for him to get out of this scenario just instantly evaporated. It's like, no, I don't care for you anymore. And it just the whole ending of the film at that point really felt like a damp squib. All oh, right, no, no. It's, and like I say, it's, if anything, it intrigued me more because whether or not the whole idea of him being chosen because he was a terrible person matters, there's an additional angle to that, which is Gat is requiring a sacrifice at this stage or requiring an offering to make him feel like he's connected to this world. And he could have potentially taken something from from anyone, but he has deliberately chosen someone here who we see is selfish, who has been trying to do anything he can to get out of this, who tried to justify his refusal to do so in terms of his own personal trauma in past. He said that he's willing to let the universe die rather than do this. But the fact that Gat eventually manages to convince him and bring him around to doing it actually seems to make the sacrifice mean more because this is like the last person you would ever expect to make such a sacrifice. Yeah, it still doesn't mean I care anything for him. It was like, yeah, you can die, I don't care now. And all those things that sort of led up to it, I think most humans, that's the way they would act. You know, you're not really given much choice, really, but to attempt this sacrifice. So I don't really see that it would have been any different with anyone else. So the fact that this guy is a serial killer just seems like I don't know, and a step that didn't really add anything for me, I guess. Or almost detracted for me. But it's the fact that there is that moment that admittedly doesn't drag on for too long, where he's, he is basically just sort of saying, fuck it, no, I'm not going to do this, let the universe die. Yeah, but I think that's probably a lot of people would have said that under duress in that situation, because... Are you going to stab yourself and do that? or you know, Because the universe dying is, is a fairly abstract thing to try and get your head around, I think. And in fact, you know, when you die, for all intents and purposes to you, the universe does die, right? On a storytelling and an emotional level, it still seemed to mean something to me at that stage. Well, fair enough, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see the arguments against it, but no i think I think it adds a, a a complexity to the situation that would have been missing otherwise well, it's interesting because I think to some people it adds a complexity and some people it takes away one yeah depending on your point of view I'm saying I'm very much on Paul's side on this that it completely deflated the whole ending for me. Wes collapses on the bathroom floor bleeding out as we hear Gat noisily devouring his liver. There's a lot of slurping here. Yeah. <laughs> there is, yes. Gat's stall finally opens, light pouring out, and we see his true monstrous form. And that form, I don't know, it doesn't really look like it, but I suddenly found myself thinking of the engineer from Hellraiser. <laughs> Wes jerks awake. It is daylight, and he's lying there, bleeding on the bathroom floor. There is no sign of Gat or of Gary's remains. Yeah, in fact, the, the bathroom... I mean, it, 
it's not clean, but there isn't the spray of blood and, and debris and so on all over it. It just looks like an ordinary bathroom. Wes, in agony, just crawls across this floor, leaving a trail of blood behind him. And he hears Gat's voice telling him that Gat has returned to the ether. The world, well, the universe, is saved. Wes whispers that he is a hero. Gat corrects him, telling him, No, heroes are remembered. You will be forgotten. That's what you deserve. That's what we both deserve. We are beings of pure destruction. We don't belong in this beautiful world. I mean, that's not really true. Is it? Heroes aren't necessarily remembered, I wouldn't have said. To do something that saves the universe and to have nobody know your name, I'd say it was even more heroic because it's not about glorifying yourself, I would argue. But anyway. I think they're talking more in mythical terms there. And for someone to be a hero of myth, they certainly have to be remembered because otherwise there wouldn't be the myths about them. Well, they should have said that. Wes staggers out through the door and into the daylight. He finds the bear, its recorded message winding down. Wes collapses on the ground, dead. The camera pulls back up into orbit and beyond, showing us the glory of the cosmos. Credits! The end. And this isn't a long film. This is, what, an hour and 20 minutes to get to this stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that works very much in its favour because, you know, as you mentioned, this is a very contained film. It's, I mean, it's not quite a single location because we get the exterior shots and we get the flashbacks and so on. But largely, yeah. But it's fundamentally, yeah, almost a very stagey production with Wes just in this bathroom trapped there in dialogue with this unseen figure in the toilet stall. The short running time, I think, works very much there to stop that conceit out saying it's welcome because it's far from the only film that's that's tried to do something like that but i think it's it's quite a difficult thing to pull off over any length of time both in a film and and in a scenario and on stage as well because i know when we've been to the edinburgh fringe we always look through the listings for anything that's like horror themed horror drama and so on well drama or horror and from experience, I'm now kind of wary of one actor shows because sometimes they're good, but I think it's quite a, a it's quite a difficult thing to do. So we saw um, was it Michael Sabaton do Call of Cthulhu as a one man show mm-hmm. um, back in about 2015, I think it was in Edinburgh, and, and you know he did a good job of it. But other ones I've seen, I don't know. It, it's just so much easier when you've got the dynamic of other actors on stage, I think. And I felt this film suffered a bit from that, of just having sort of one, what was really one actor on the screen pretty much throughout. Mm. As I've said, I didn't have that problem at all. I felt the, the dynamic between Wes and Gat worked very well. That, you know, just because we couldn't see Gat, it didn't stop him feeling like a real presence in the scenes. If anything, obviously the flashbacks with Brenda were pretty crucial to the reveal at the end about Wes. But I'm not sure that having particularly that woman at the beginning, but also 
Yeah, even Gary, I'm not sure that necessarily added a lot to it. I think there was a, a sort of purity to the the simple setup with Wes and Gat that worked really well as a you know a, a two or a a one hander and one invisible hander. Because I'd say whilst it's an hour and twenty, the full running time. I actually think if it was tightened up as done as a like a one hour episode of Cabinet of Curiosities or something like that, I think it would have been better because I was aware that, oh, it's only 120. But then at times I was thinking this feels a bit drawn out at times, mm-hmm. um, which kind of mm. surprised me given it was running an hour of 120. And I think something else I watched this very week, I know both of you are, are also seen, which is almost exactly the same running time, I think one hour 15, is um, the Black Mirror episode, Demon 79, which has a lot of parallels with this in that there's a kind of a comedic demon demanding somebody Mm. makes sacrifices, not of themselves, but, you know, murders, or the world's going to end. But at least you can see him. Well, yeah, but, you know, the, the setup is, there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, for my money, having seen them both in in the same week, there seem to be a lot of parallels. And if I were to recommend one above the other, I'd definitely recommend Demon 79, I think. Yeah, same. I enjoy both of them. I don't see it as like a competition between them. I'm really quite taken with Glorious, simply because so much of it caught me by surprise. I reviewed this last year as part of my October Horror Movie Challenge, and I'd heard really nothing about it ahead of time, apart from the fact that it was a Lovecraftian horror film that involved a glory hole. That was literally all I knew going in. The first time Gatanathoa's name was mentioned, you know, that scene with uh, Wes holding his tongue, there was a real sort of light bulb moment as that happened. Oh, okay, I I didn't, didn't see that coming. I'd expected something far more comedic from the setup and i mean there are some very funny moments in it but it's not an out-and-out comedy and it gets steadily darker as it goes on and that too was a real surprise to me it ended up becoming one of my favorite films of last year for that reason because i'd gone in with incredibly low expectations and ended up watching something that was so much different than what i expected that I, i find myself kind of loving it I could see myself being this the only time I would go out of my way to watch it. I, I don't see myself going back to see it ever again. Like I said, it just felt so deflating at the end. It's, okay, seen, been there, done it, seen it, don't need to revisit it, done. I mean, I think I can see what you mean by the fact that it's, it's very different. It is a very different setup for a film. Mm. I think kind of refreshingly different take on, you know, if you're going to put it into the... Well, you're kind of compelled to put it into the bracket of a Lovecraftian film because it mentions... Um, Katanathoa and you know the cosmos and you know and all that there's a cosmic horror element it definitely sort of uses uh horror tropes in it oh god yeah so you know i mean i I quite enjoyed it and i think i think a lot of listeners would enjoy it too i think Hmm. so yeah i don't know what would i give it kind of i don't know seven out of ten maybe yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd probably do that as well. I mean, there are things that, as I've mentioned before, didn't quite work for me. Wait a minute, it was your best film of the year last year and it gets 7 out of 10? Yeah, I said it was one of my favourites. I didn't end up picking it as my favourite of the year. I can't remember what I did. Right. But it was in my uh, top five, I think. 
I think seven out of ten is a fair score for something that's in my top five films. There's, you know, there are very few ten out of ten films out there. You'd be hopeless on um, Come Dine With Me because mm. the scoring on that. So the food was terrible. I didn't enjoy the evening at all. What are you marking it? Six out of ten. And then the next person, it was the best evening ever. Totally fantastic. Seven <laughs> out of ten. That's about the range of marks. Hardly anyone ever gives below five out of ten. Hardly anyone ever gives above eight out of ten. But they are in competition with each other. But um, just always amuses me. I think this is uh, something from the internet age that there is real pressure to rate something either the best or the worst of ever when you're reviewing something because of just the way that aggregated star reviews work. It's like, oh, I don't know, if you were asking people to review your podcast, as I hear sometimes podcast creators do, yeah. The number of times I've heard people sort of say, oh, yeah, and, and can you go onto iTunes or whatever and rate it five stars? And it's, on one level, there are probably very few podcasts, again, I'd honestly rate five stars, but there's the pressure to do that because there's also the fact that if you're looking at a review for anything on the internet and it's less than five stars, there's that immediate thing of thinking, well, what's wrong with it then? Do you mean out of 10 or out of five? Because that's the other thing. <laughs> I don't think there are too many people out there asking people to rate their podcast five stars out of 10. Okay, no, when you said if something was five stars or less, I thought you meant out of 10 because like five out of 10 is quite... If I'm looking at a film and it's got five or less on IMDb, unless I've heard it's independently that it's really good, then that's a fairly good sign that it's probably not very good. Yeah, I think IMDb and so on is a bit different, but when it comes to, yeah, for example, product recommendations... As soon as the score starts dipping much below five out of five, then, yeah, there is that feeling that there might be something wrong. I'm sure it's the kind of thing marketers could write an entire PhD theses about. But talking of film reviewers, I saw uh, Roger Ebert reviewed this one and he summed it up with his last line, which I thought was, yeah, quite clever. He says, ultimately, this offers a clever concept and a cool acting exercise but it falls short of glory. <laughs> I doubt Roger Ebert reviewed it himself, or at least not without a seance, but they've kept his website going long after his death. <laughs> you jumped in with that quicker than I could, because I was going to say, what do you spell it out on a Ouija board? <laughs> oh, is he? I didn't realise he was, he was dead. He's, he's been dead for a while. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Oh, about 10 years or so, I think, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yep, I didn't realise that. So it was on his website, though. There's a panel of reviewers which still post stuff up on there, but it's not by him. Okay, my mistake. Yeah. But still a good line. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes, it is. To wrap things up, what out of this do you think we could steal for gaming? Because from my perspective, I you know, very much that the way it handles a closed setting as I said, I don't think I'd necessarily do the same thing at a game because it'd get frustrating, but I think it's mm -hmm. got a few ideas as to do that. But I, I guess personally, I'm much more taken with that 
very odd representation of the mythos and the way that it made me think of Resume with Monsters. After having read Resume with Monsters years ago, it's something that I keep getting tempted to do in a Cthulhu game at some stage, sort of had these these very human interactions, these mundane, almost farcical interactions between humans and, and these Lovecrafting gods. But yeah, I've never quite worked out a way of doing that. I think it would be a good case study to give to a GM to show them what not to do, purely for that reason, yeah. that this is everything that you've seen that is so stereotypical with this kind of environment that has been in every other scenario. Don't do this, do something fucking different. And also the mm. fact that it pretty much just name checks a mythos god. This is a good case study of, well, you can make it try to appear like the mythos, but it's not really, is it? It's something completely different that just uses a few details and a, and a name reference. So I, I would yeah, seriously use this as a case of what not to do in gaming, to be fair. I'd say that just name checking and doing something different with it is a strength, not a weakness. Mm, I, I will firmly stand on the other side of that. I would agree. It's a bit of a cautionary tale of a number of elements of what not to do in a game and perhaps in a film too. But key to those being don't have your scenario set up where you've got no NPCs that you can introduce because you need the NPCs. They're your, as a, as a keeper, they're your playing pieces through which you can interact with the, the player characters with. If you trap your players in a room or a location and they've got no NPCs to talk to, it might be great because they might be a great bunch of players who all interact fantastically and they don't need input from you and you can just sit back and let them carry on. But really, I think part of the fun for me as a, as a keeper is interacting with the, the player characters through an NPC. And for me, that's like, I haven't got any NPCs, I'll write Gary in. And that's where <laughs> Gary, the, the caretaker, kind of comes in. But then, you know... I have to kill it as an object lesson to the player characters and then I don't have any NPCs again. So I think that's that's an issue. They're just being trapped at a location and absolutely no way out, even though there are ways out and you just contrive to have them be trapped. I mean, it can work, but it's, I think it's a tricky thing to, to pull off. And ultimately, is there any other way out apart from doing the sacrifice Maybe, maybe not. So you've, you've only got one possible ending. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of things in this that I think, yeah, would almost be like a cautionary exercise for, for, for GMs not to emulate. On the other hand, I can think of at least one scenario I've written that does work very much like that. It uh, does involve potentially being trapped in a location and that there aren't any NPCs to interact with. And I'd like to think that it works well. I mean, certainly when I've run it, it's never gone wrong. And the people I know of who've run it have, have, haven't complained about it. In fact, I've written two scenarios like that. <laughs> As I said, I think it's a hard trick to pull off. And it is possible, but I think it's full of potential problems. But I suppose the point is, as long as you think through those problems and come up with creative problems and uh, to hit the players with still give them options of things to do and keep the premise or keep the the confinement fresh and interesting then that's not a problem yeah and i think that's part of the reason this was one one hour 20 thank you you're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. 
We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to trap people in the bathroom and thank them. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to everyone who has ever backed us, and we have a number of new backers to thank by name. Yep, thanks very much to William Adcock. Name we know there. Yes, thank you, Bill. And also thank you very much to David Luce. And thank you to Michael Kremen. And thanks to Robert Porter. And thank you much to Andrew Kovalos. And thank you very much to Stuart Dobson. And thanks to Xander Ford. And last but not least, thank you very much indeed to Malcolm Benison. And if we did mess up any of your names, please do let us know and we will uh, try again next time. And the podcast has a favour to ask. If you enjoyed this episode, or if you're enjoying the podcast in general, please do leave a review somewhere where people might find reviews, or just mention it to people on social media, shout it under bathroom stalls to people who might be looking for something to occupy them. And how many stars should I leave, Scott? All of them. All of the stars. All of the stars. The space between the stars is what we want you to vote. That's a bit difficult to put on some websites. They're they're limited like that. But also remember, if you are going to yell it under a bathroom door, don't look underneath it. That was your first and only warning. This is all very creepy advice. Let's not (laughs) say that. (laughs) (laughs) Because the last thing you want in a horror podcast is for it to be creepy. Yeah, in that way, yeah. It probably is. There's creepy and there's creepy, yes. I think that's enough of that. You've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Off to find a glory hole. Feel like we should end this episode with the sound of a toilet flashing. Well, my stoma did then decide to go. So close <laughs> enough. <laughs> Thank you for providing real time sound effects then, Matt. <laughs>